computers. This is Intelligent Performance. Welcome to another episode of the Intelligent Performance Podcast, where we are fanatical about excellence in human endeavor. And today we take a look at what does it take to create leaders? And no better expert, I think, than having the Lieutenant Colonel Dean Cannon come on the show. He heads up the part of the British Army called the Center for Army Leadership, where they focus purely on looking at what is leadership and how do they develop across the army, not just in their offices, but also across their soldier base, and how does it look, what are the things they can teach, and what are the characteristics they're trying to pull out and develop in their soldiers. Dean himself is a very accomplished soldier. He's been on incredible tours around the world, served in some of the you know, the headline wars and, and, and theatres that we would have seen, no doubt, in the news in, in times of recent and also past and has just come back from a tour overseas training some of the European and um, also some of the European forces. So some amazing lessons in here. I cannot wait to share them and let's dive right in. Dean, where I'd love to start today is actually on your definition of leadership, given your breadth of experience and where you've been in the world and where it's taken you. How would you think about defining leadership from this perspective? So I suspect that, much like me, you're surprised at how many definitions there are. And the fact that the army didn't have a definition for leadership until five years ago is probably surprising to some. And so in this, which is my early days in the center of army leadership, I think I fall back on the army's definition, which I can't see any fault in it. The combination of character, knowledge, and action that inspires others to succeed. But across all of the definitions I've seen and read, they all pretty much boil down to how someone communicates to change what people are doing in some way. Mm. The army's written it down in a much more fluid and comprehensive way, but ultimately it's about communicating to change what people do. Yeah. I always, I am kind of does puzzle me where, especially from an organization like the British army, where you've done so much, you know, good and bad, you about British empire, et cetera, that to not have a, like, we still, we still seem to be grappling with what it is. And I think, why I start there is it's particularly interesting if we think about how do you develop and train leaders, because without almost, when we speak to leaders or when I speak to leaders or people who are interested in leadership, they often say, oh, it's to be inspiring. And what would be your take on that when you're thinking about developing up and coming leaders, perhaps people who are maybe thinking about leadership, but also those who, who aren't even, it's not even on their radar yet. How would you start to embody that as a what would they need to step into they need to what's the best way to think about it from from that regard if yeah the 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 definition came after us working out what it was that leaders needed to be overall right and that boiled down to what leaders are which is where the character element of the definition comes in what leaders know which notes on the knowledge part what they do, which talks about the action that they undertake. And so us realizing that those tenants, what leaders, what they know, what they do, and then followed up with how they do it, the more practical aspect is where the definition falls out. And mm. so the start point of all of that is character. Mm. And that's something which I think is translatable across any industry, not just the army. Mm. And I think he's perhaps being realized more and more so in the modern context. Certainly here in the UK, 
some pretty high profile organizations and institutions that have realized just training people in skills is not enough if their character isn't up to the job. Mm. And so if we accept that pretty much everyone is trainable in some sense, then the reasons for you to recruit them should be based on character first, get the right type of person, and then you can turn them into whatever you need specifically from have the wrong type of person. It doesn't matter how much you train them, they're going to let you down or your organization down ultimately. So mm. what a leader is, what their character is, is the start point. So if we just think back, so I had the pleasure of going through the army recruitment process as a young guy, so it would have been 15, 20 years ago now. So the initial screening process was, I forget where it is, but you go on a two-day extravaganza. Or In Westbury. That's the one, yeah. yeah. You put on the bib and you run around and you... And I thought they were testing for skills, someone coming through it. With that, that first stage, is that what you're looking for? Is it, or are you actually? No, far from it. Interesting. And so the, the very rough foundation is, you know, is this person trainable? We're not actually going to conduct any training. We're just going to check that they are at the very basic level receptive to being trained. They do actually want to be there. And that's the genesis of a little bit of physical, physical exertion and a bit of mental resilience testing as well. But it's not to check what you know, it's to check what you could know and the fact that you are receptive to training. That's what they're really looking for in those initial stages. Right. And as long as we can identify that somebody is receptive to training and can be trained, then what we're really looking for is character. And how would you define character in terms of what are the traits perhaps you're looking mm -hmm. for inside of that? So the army would say that it operates values-based leadership and the army's six values, courage, discipline, respect, integrity, loyalty, and selfless commitment are what we base the, the values traits on that we're looking for in that. Mm. The, the courage, the first one, we would break down subsequently into physical and moral courage because requirements have moral courage, probably more difficult than physical sometimes, especially yep. uh, if you're operating in peacetime. Mm. Why do you say that? Because I think the history of the British Army especially and the history of leadership studies, probably across the world in military terms, focus, focuses and has focused very much on what we would call the last 100 metres, what people do in those elements of battle where they are closing with the enemy. And that's what the vast majority of leadership study has been. And actually, whilst that is extremely difficult, it's relatively simple it's quite straightforward it's quite transactional this is what we're going to do follow me let's go leading on day-to-day -day business in a in a garrison town when there isn't an operational focus mm. and within an operation there isn't that last hundred meters hyper focus then actually the challenges of leadership can be a lot more difficult especially it's almost far more civilian junior leadership and a lot of the lessons will be a lot more translatable to Civilian industries, yeah. I suspect. Yeah. So is that, does it require different character for, for that? Because if you get too much of the, just to pick on this courage piece, too much physical courage, as you were, mm -hmm. does it translate into poor outcomes, would you say? Or is that, is that what you found? Or I think the, what I've learned in my early days here from what I've read and what I've been told and actually a lot of self-reflection, which being in this job forces you to mm. reflect on your own leadership a lot is that before you can do anything, you have to know yourself as a leader. 
Mm. And unless you are willing to look at yourself, recognize where you can develop, and indeed recognize that which you've been good at or could also be better at, yep. until you work all that out, then it's very difficult to move other people on in their leadership. And from looking at yourself and realizing what you're good at and what you can be better at, you should hopefully realize that how you behave in different situations will impact on your people and therefore how you apply yourself in different situations. Having the emotional intelligence to know how you're going to react in different situations and be able to adjust it consciously mm. is the real first skill of leadership. Mm. And so recognizing that your in barracks relatively steady pace of life, which doesn't have a hyper focus of the last hundred meters on operations, you need to recognize that and adjust how you lead accordingly. And so knowing yourself and knowing how to change your styles of leadership, depending on the situation you're in, that full spectrum between day-to-day -day business in camp, hyper-focused last hundred meters of operations, mm. we would say is, is the first skill. And certainly having reflected back on my own time, the, um, the requirement to do that is compelling. Mm. So from a development perspective, if you're thinking about, let's say you've got this young, just pick on me, 18 year old, right. And they've come to this training center. They've demonstrated that they've got an element. They demonstrate some trainability as it were. I'm not sure if that's the mm -hmm. specific term, but where, how do they go? Okay, cool. So how do you think about the approach to the skill development, but also trait development? Because there's one thing about knowing how to fire a rifle. Mm -hmm. The next bit is how to, how to not look like a monkey or come across in the wrong way with some of your soldiers or maybe more and more these days, I think working with civilian agencies as well. Mm. Like how do you how do you navigate that kind of a soft skill, I think would be a lot mm. of the terminology. How do you think about that development approach? So if we take the officer's commission course at Sandhurst as, as an example, they're here for a year and whilst the course is undergoing a significant review at the moment, there is as much time spent on character development as there is on knowledge and skills. And so that second major aspect of being a leader, what leaders know, their professional competence, their basic military skills, obviously that is the main thread throughout the whole course. They are learning their core business, mm -hmm. the core business of being a soldier and yep. an officer, but they are not being specifically trained in the trades that they're going to go to. That comes after their year when they go to their, what we would call phase two special to arm training. So everyone's getting exactly the same training, regardless of what branch they're going to in professional military skills, but also everyone's getting the same training in character development, trait development, and the first term and within that, the first six weeks, pretty relentless amount of training under some pressure, getting a lot of basic military skills up to scratch very quickly, but also identifying where people's areas for development are. Because the sooner you can recognize where people's areas for development are, then the staff can focus in on developing those particular aspects of an individual. And so I think you would probably be, I was surprised at how individual training plans have become in what is a very large, very well-oiled and very historical machine, which mm. has been churning out officers for a very long time. So it's interesting. I think, I think back to my, my time, psychological safe space is often kind of banded around in the civilian world a lot. I'm not sure so much about the military context. 
that initial period coming here, it wasn't, it didn't particularly feel like a safe space. And I'm just interested, not, that's not a criticism. It's much more of an interesting, like, why do you, why did, why do you take that approach? Why is it almost like shock and awe thrown into the deep end? It's like you watch some of the YouTube clips around it. It's quite, you know, the feedback is very vocal, very loud and very in your face. Like, mm-hmm. What's that about? What are you trying to get to there? Is it just trying to make people uncomfortable? Is it what's the kind of methodology behind it? So what you'll get here, despite perhaps some of the stereotypes, is a very wide, broad range of people from different backgrounds and across the international community, of course, coming to Sandhurst. And those first six weeks really serve as a leveler for everyone, Mm. not to beat or break people down at all, to bring everyone up just to a common baseline level. And that can happen pretty quickly. And the six weeks point is broadly considered the amount of time that would take to happen. And then once you've got that, you've got a good common baseline from which everyone can develop and move on. Once you know that everyone has been taught the same, treated the same for the first six weeks, then you can start to identify where individuals move on to shine beyond that point or need further development. Right. So it's just about setting a common baseline more than anything. Okay. And how do you think about like theoretical training? Because a lot of that is very prevalent in the civilian world. Like this, you know, in terms of leadership, you can Google leadership and you'll find you know, mm-hmm. 3,000 courses on leadership. Mm-hmm. We often find that it's very common that when you're developing talent, the skill is just part of it, right? The actual implementation or the ability to practice. How do you... How does the army approach that? What like I know you use there's a there's a public order scenario which comes to mind for me. I didn't get to take part in it, but it's where they I think they teach the theory of riot training, as it were, mm. and then they throw you into a riot. Yeah. And I think it's a really beautiful example about the difference between theory versus practical. Mm-hmm. What how does the army think about that in terms of what are they what's the order you do it in? Do you do it theoretically first? Is it throw it by baton baptism by fire? How do you talk about what are you trying to do there? What's the best strategy? Pretty much every element of all the courses that the Army teaches, and certainly on the leadership stuff, the point we're trying to get to specifically on that is where people follow a a routine of being taught the theory, having opportunity to consider it, debate it, suggest alternatives, and then work up to then practical application. And you'll see most of the courses the Army delivers following that broad model. When you get to the further down that chain, practical application, then people will be put into some testing scenarios in order to really find out both what they know and whether how they are applying it Mm. as best as they can be. And one aspect which is fundamental, which we might come back to, is an often forgotten aspect of leadership development, which is the reflection and the evaluation of what happened to change what went wrong rather than just accepting that it went wrong. And so with the example you use of the public order scenario, it's not really about the fact that you need to train or practice people in controlling public disorder. It's about putting people who are in leadership positions under a certain amount of stress in order to test how they are applying their leadership skills more than anything. The scenario could be anything, anywhere that is difficult, challenging, and requires an element of leadership of other people in testing circumstances. I had going through uh, some training, pre-deployment training for going to Afghanistan as a company commander. 
what I felt at the time was entirely in, incredible and unrealistic training scenario thrown at people where there was a relentless series of unlikely scenarios all combined into one and which I was, I complained quite a lot to the training staff to say that this is just, <laughs> this is ridiculous. You're, you're putting us under too much pressure right. too often, too quickly. And it wasn't really very realistic. And so we shouldn't be spending time doing it. Six weeks later in Afghanistan, almost that exact scenario played out. Wow. And it was, I spoke about self-reflection before and, and knowing yourself and evaluating what's happened. That was the moment for me after all that had calmed down to really go, actually, you need to be a bit more humble in my approach to training organizations, know what they're doing. And actually, the fact that I had been through that training scenario, which was, in my view, way over the top as far as how much it was testing my leadership, mm. actually proved hugely beneficial six weeks later when I was back in or I was in what was a, a real scenario, which wasn't very different at all. Well, and I guess from that regard what how do you as an organization how do you kind of organize that that feedback loop almost like you're going out to afghanistan i guess the army's got a the benefit of having you know a large number of operations it's been on and so mm -hmm. can but how when you go into different theaters when you go into different from a commercial perspective this is you know just going to different markets going into different product lines whatever and even you know changing from newspapers now through to social media yeah. it's still like different medium different approaches how do you kind of provide that feedback loop how do you do that like you go on operations you go crikey you know we, we face this scenario how does that get fed back in and then how do you go okay what's that breakdown are you involved in that kind of like well you know we really needed more courage we really needed more better empathy here yeah. What's that so you made a really useful distinction just at the end there because in training terms the evaluation feedback loop what we would call lessons loop mm -hmm is really well established. And so after every significant incident on an operational tour, there'll be some debriefs, there'll be reports written, and that will get fed directly back to the people who are training those who are going to come and take over from you. And that's a very fixed, well-established route now. So that what is being trained on each course is yep. different every time because it's evolving with what's happening in the operational theater. Okay. The point you touched on at the end is something which I don't think I've seen happen anywhere really. And it's reflections on leadership specifically. How could leaders have done better in those difficult situations? I haven't seen that formalized anywhere. And that's something which we're looking at now yep. as the center of farming leadership. How do you firstly codify leadership? We've managed to do that in the doctrine mm. and in the army leadership code, but how do you subsequently measure it to see how well it's performed and how it can improve mm. is the tricky next step. And that's a lot more scientific than artistic, which is a big growth area for leadership and leadership doctrine development. And from a development perspective, are you seeing, obviously there's the, there's the operational lens, which needs to be training, mm -hmm. you know, facing new scenarios. Are you also looking at the types of people coming through are different as well. Would that be your assessment? I know we hear from corporates that, you know, Gen X, I think, you no know, Gen Z would probably be at this point, are very different in terms of their values. They're looking for more purpose-driven. And I think one of the standouts from watching some of the Sandhurst, you know, YouTube clips is that, you know, they, they get very frank. You know, one, one guy goes through this dilemma about, you know, the um, 
actual killing someone basically and then they really struggle with that and it showed i thought really impressively actually how that is a challenge and that commander's got to come to their own decision around that so are you also how do you how are you incorporating that piece i wonder mm. in terms of that the, the other lens you know is the operational piece but also who you're actually working with them yeah so i've just come from commanding a battalion which had hundreds and hundreds of young people in it, young soldiers and i think yes you're right they are different to the young people that joined the army 20 years ago, but I don't think actually their values are that different. Mm. And I don't think their reasons for joining the army are that different to what they have been for a very long time, right. 50, 60, 70 years, probably. You know, noting that the world wars generated soldiers for very different reasons out of necessity rather than choice. Mm. Everyone that joins the army now is a volunteer. There is significant amount of debate about recruiting for character and values as I've gone through. What I would say is the army does a really good job of teaching and displaying to people what those character traits and values need to be. And so going back to our very first point about how we identify the right individuals to come in, it's the ability to become something rather than already being something. And so I think young people today join the army for the same reasons most of us join the army. They want some meaningful purpose. It sounds pretty grand, but they want to change the world mm. in their own little way. And the army gives them a medium through which they can do that. I think that's been common and will always be common. There are the core values, which I've spoken about. And if there are elements of those values, which they need to have demonstrated to them and be developed, then the army is the ideal place to do that. And so whilst the raw product might be slightly different in its um, context, perhaps social understanding mm. and approach, what you very quickly get is a individual who is aligned with army values and standards relatively quickly. And if there are individuals who can't meet those standards and don't incorporate those values, then they don't stay in the army for very long. Mm. So it's interesting. I just thought it almost sounds like there's a contradiction though, in terms of the ability to become, but yet you're hiring and looking for character. Mm-hmm. And again, not a criticism, but it's interesting. So which parts of character can't be taught, perhaps? Mm-hmm. How do you evaluate that piece? So our, our part in the plan leadership, and this is a really useful point to talk about, there is this question which everyone comes back to on leadership. Is it an inherent mm. skill or trait, or is it something which can be taught, nature or nurture? And we have very much settled on the former. You can teach people to be better leaders fact Mm. and identifying the skills required means that you can train people in those skills to be better now of course there are some inherent character traits which are useful in the early stages of a leader's development but everyone has some elements of leadership ability and if you know what they need to be developed on and they know themselves as i said before what Mm. needs to be better okay then you can train people to be better leaders and Learned behaviours, learned leadership behaviours are one of the massive growth areas for us, particularly in a non-operational context. How do you make leaders better day to day as they go around their business when most of the time people aren't really thinking about, I need to be a good leader. Mm. Lots of people think, perhaps even worry about what what is my leadership going to be like in that really difficult testing moment. Mm. We think there needs to be more of a focus on day to day Business as usual, we would call it, but I guess it's applicable across into civilian industries as well. Yeah. 
it, it's a an unlooked at or unconsidered part of leadership generally people focus on events specific things or specific difficulties that you need to lead through actually probably the vast majority of discontent in organizations comes from poor leadership just because people aren't thinking about it yeah in their everyday business all the time and those are the reasons that people become disgruntled bored disenfranchised in their roles so more focus on that sort of stuff which sounds like it could be exhausting if you're thinking about your leadership all day every day but actually if it becomes learned behaviors yeah which you can train into people then it's a lot less exhausting because it becomes very natural yes yeah, interesting there was a Simon Sinek was on your podcast and he talks about when we stood out he said good leaders make bad movies and I thought it was a really powerful point because you often see movies about I think of Wolf of Wall Street and you think about his leadership style yeah. and you know complete moral collapse if you think about it in terms of doing what's right mm -hmm. but makes an amazing movie you know huge full of drama etc cetera, etc cetera. and there'd be countless even war movies and similar to that perhaps the exception would be maybe Band of Brothers or some of this other stuff they can make they've been able to tell the story of a good leader but even then they use examples of poor leadership to demonstrate I think interesting things so yeah because it he shares how it's very routine actually good leadership I guess is that mm. is that your experience you talk about operations as a different ball game in terms of, but I would imagine there would be a high degree, well, it's a speculation only, when you're in Afghanistan, there would be a lot of like, you're out sometimes, but you're not out most of the time, I would imagine. Would that, is that the case? Is there a level of, you're in a different theatre, but you're in, it's quite, quote unquote, business as usual out there? Yeah, and the real challenge on operations is swinging wildly between those very intense moments yeah. back to quiet times within the space of minutes potentially and the fact that that could happen just even out on one patrol where you could be in contact with the enemy which then stops but the patrol carries on and go into your meeting with some local villagers about something and asking individuals to switch between those two in a very short period of time is quite difficult i'll pick up on something you said at the start of that thread which is about good leaders make boring movies the reality for many people when they're talking about leadership is the first point of reference is bad leadership. Mm. And most people can relate back to something which they saw, which was a bad leadership trait or act as their reference point. And we would recognize that much like most things, if you are experiencing the negative end of the spectrum, whilst that's unpleasant, it's probably the best learning opportunity. And most of us probably learn a huge amount about leadership by it being done poorly to us. Yeah. And so reflecting on that, identifying it, certainly I would say in, in my experience, when you see it being done badly, mm. if nothing else, it just triggers something in your brain to say, I won't do that. Yeah. And I won't be that person. Mm. And that's a huge developmental step forward. And so recognizing that negative experiences can actually be positive yeah. is, a, is a useful habit to get into as well. Interesting. And that kind of kind of leads to a question around readiness, right? So you utilizing feedback loops, let's say, looking for self-reflection, you're throwing them into challenging scenarios. I guess in the nature of the, you know, let's say, let's just use the officer training program because it's 12 months long. Mm -hmm. um, given that leadership is a development journey, it's, it's one which is almost like there's a mountain with no top. Yeah. How do you define readiness for an individual, an organization? a group, a cohort, where, where innately there's going to be 
some people have just got to grips with it. And then there's the ones who are um, kicking ass, basically. How do you think about that? How do you like, when is someone ready? How would you look at that? Yeah. Never is the answer. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the, so they're never ready? We, uh, they are. Most people will be ready without realizing it or feeling it a lot of the time. So the imposter syndrome that a lot of leaders experience thinking they are not ready or not qualified or experienced enough to be a leader in any situation is very common. Mm. And then in most cases, they turn out to be just fine. The approach we have at Center for Leadership and our remit is to train leaders from the most junior private soldier generals, and that's through career, not just for the start of their training means that everyone needs to recognize that leadership development is a continual through career, through life activity, and that individuals need to approach it in that fashion if they're going to continue to be better. Because even if you worked through the non-existent list of every single thing I need to do to be a fantastic leader, mm. by the time you got to the end, you'd need to update yourself on the first thing again, because the context would have changed. And there's a a relatively new box around the army's leadership model, which has the task of the team and the individual in it based mm. on John Adair's model, which has the context, understanding the context in which you are trying to manage the tension between these three elements, because the context is everything. And so if the context is always going to be different, then you always need to be developing yourself as a leader. And with, as we discussed previously, people coming into the army, for the same reasons, with the same goals, but with a different context, then continually updating that is going to be important. Mm. And so just to come back to the readiness, you're saying you don't know? I'm saying you will always be ready, but you can be more ready okay. to be a leader. Interesting. And that, so just from the context of the, of the officer program, then so what are you, what are they looking for? And this is not to say, I know it's pretty, it's, it's changing or evolving. What are they looking for towards the end then? Is it, is it just a degree of capability, knowing that this is just the beginning of the journey? Is it more like a shared? So I think that we're probably looking for the, those first two big underwriting sections of doctrine to be in place. Okay. The, the character has been developed to a point where we can recognize the Army's values and standards in an individual. Fundamentally, they can't leave training if those aren't there. Right. And we're looking for an element of knowing what they need to know to be able to step out and at least safely and confidently lead yeah. whoever it is they're going out to lead. How they do it will develop over time. Right. And the real advantage that the army brings is there are lots of peers mm. around you with experience to help you do that. Yeah. And where there aren't peers, then there are people above and below you at every level who can advise and guide. And so if we use the officer example, every platoon commander that leaves here will have had a year's training longer than any other rank gets mm. before they enter service, but will have no actual experience of leading in real scenarios. They will have a platoon sergeant who's been in the army for 10 or 12 years, who whilst they technically platoon sergeant works for them actually is going to be their mentor, their coach, their guide for the initial stages of their career to make sure that how they apply the values, the standards and their knowledge works in a practical scenario when they get there. Mm. I think having someone formally assigned to new people in roles, reverse mentors, especially peer mentors, ideally slightly offset 
from their area of responsibility is a hugely valuable tool. And we encourage people to do that as much as possible as well. What's the value the army sees in throwing a young guy, could be 22 or gal for that matter, into where they don't have operational experience? Why do they do it like that? What's the benefit of that where they've just developed them purely on character, standards, knowledge? Mm. Why, why is it like that? So I would suggest that there isn't an alternative. Mm. You could continue to train and train and train people wherever you could try to make the scenarios as complex and demanding as you like, but they will never be as complex and demanding as when you're there on your own, actually with soldiers and officers looking at you saying, what are we doing now? Yep. And potentially the bangs that are going off for live bullets rather than blanks in training. I left Pandhurst and after my platoon commander's course went straight to Northern Ireland. Right. And didn't actually have, I had a platoon sergeant, but the platoon is split in two. And so the platoon sergeant commands one half out patrols and the platoon commander commands the other half out patrols. And so whilst I had very good senior corporals, the person who naturally you would look to for the nod, the steer, the bit of advice wasn't naturally right there for me. And so that was pretty intimidating, but what it does is immerses you completely in yeah. focusing on what you're doing. And I think set me up really well for the whole rest of my career, because whilst I had experienced soldiers there that could help guide me, I had to really look after them and myself comprehensively really quickly in an operational setting uh, very early on in my career. Okay. And just to touch on, this seems to be, and you, you'll know a lot more about this than I do, this seems to be a, almost a, a change in approach from the Army in terms of, like, the officer's stream is well-developed, it's the longest program in the Army. Mm-hmm. But there's now almost like a move towards understanding that actually we need to formalise in some degree lower you know, non-commissioned officers mm-hmm. and, and formalise the leadership uh, kind of process or development process there. Mm-hmm. Can you share a little bit about why that's changing or what the kind of intent there is? Yeah, so there's an emerging idea that we need to have a program of development for non-commissioned officers and junior soldiers to develop their leadership through career. And that's the, the distinction is leadership development. So every soldier who promotes Lance Corporal's Carter, their first promotion, They'll go on career courses to promote to corporals and sergeants, etc. Those are very specifically tactical and technical, tactical and technical courses that will improve their skills with an element of leadership, which is sewn in through it, but mainly implicitly, not directly. Mm. What's being looked at now is how we specifically develop leadership skills through career for soldiers right through their non-commissioned officer careers in the same way that we do more so for officers and so it's a focus on leadership development through career Mm. rather than revolutionizing the entire training system which actually over time has proven to be pretty effective at teaching people skills and knowledge yeah and is that what you say is a change or is it just more of a formalization that's like it was happening already no doubt so i think it's a a formalization but it's also a standardization right to a point yep and under no circumstances is that suggesting that everyone's leadership will be standardized because that would be very dull and impossible to do. <laughs> it's giving people a standard skill set, a standard measure of leadership skills and traits which everyone can work on. Yep. 
to then make themselves better and ensure everyone's using the same leadership doctrine, applying it in the same way so that everyone knows what to expect, knows what good looks like. And if they do identify something which isn't up to those standards, then they can challenge it and get it changed. Very cool. And one thing I keep just want to come back to actually is it just in terms of the development of capabilities, because one of the things we see when we're talking to emerging leaders is they often get stuck with that I'm a I'm a you know I'm a soft communicator, let's say, mm-hmm. or I'm a I'm a funny I'm a funny one. Mm-hmm. Whereas what you're talking and what we kind of talked about prior to hitting record is really about that adaptability. How do you look to train adaptability? How do you get people to think about that as a concept? Like, what is that without, you know, like Dean is a your personality and you're inherently who you are. Yeah. But then there's the actual job where sometimes you need to be a bit of a, you know, mm. I don't know, tough maybe. Yeah. And then sometimes you need to be compassionate. How do you think about that mm. as a, and how do you? So I think the, the army, I can't think of a better industry than the military for demonstrating the requirement for having a complete scope of leadership you might need to apply yeah, at different times. Extreme levels. And yeah. we would see that on a, a scale between being transactional and transformative. Mm. So in a transactional situation, there is not really any room for discussion. We're going to do this. Let's go follow me, move now. What we might routinely expect to happen in a combat situation in that last hundred meters with a corporal storming a machine gun position and taking some of your soldiers with him. Very transactional by requirement. There isn't a huge amount of time for debate or Mm. inspirational thinking (laughs) at that point. It's, this is what needs to happen. Let's go follow me and go and do it. Yep. But you can find yourself in the army in hugely complex, long running, culturally challenging Mm. scenarios as well that do require a huge amount of transformative leadership. And so perhaps the point you're looking for is if you just sit somewhere on that scale, then you're not going to be very good at either end of it or the other end of it if you're sat on one end. So the point we made about knowing yourself and being able to train leadership skills Mm. is what we really seek to do so that people can look at themselves and say, okay, this is broadly where I sit on that scale. And I move myself left and right on it according to the situation, depending on the context. And if I can't, then I either need to get myself trained or better myself to be able to, or who in my team fills that gap. Interesting. And so if there are people in my team who cover off the transactional end, if we need them to, Mm -hmm. if I can cover off the transformative side or vice versa, then as a team, we've got all bases covered. And whilst we'll all seek to get better at being able to recognize where we are and how and when to move up and down on that scale, then great. But if as a team, we've got it all covered off, mm. then we can get by with that as long as we know each other. Yeah. yeah it's interesting. I think it's a great, great way to look at it. Like how do you bridge the gap basically? Because like you say, if you feel like you can't be that tough guy, mm. you can be transactional. Then it's a question as to, yeah, the training gap or it's how do I solve the problem elsewhere? Absolutely. Yeah. That's very cool. And so to kind of round out this discussion a little bit, so You've talked, obviously, the Army's going through a bit of change with the Future Soldier Reform Program. Um, we've got the Russian conflict with Ukraine going on at the moment, different generations coming through. Like, how is the Army starting to think about, you know, conflict or usability or what, 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 what its purpose is in the coming age, as it were, mm. where 
AI is arguably more powerful than a machine guns in some capacity. Yeah. How do you think about that as an organization where, you know, you're bureaucratic, you're, you're traditional, you're old, mm -hmm. let's say, some of that can serve really well, but also can really hold you back mm -hmm. in an age where it pays sometimes to be very nimble. So how are you thinking about that from a leadership perspective? Yeah, I think the culture in the British Army, as you mentioned, is it's very strong, rightly so. The traditions are very deep-rooted, but mm. I don't think that in the majority of cases that stops us from changing. And in many organisations, people will say that they don't like change or change is very difficult or they don't want to undergo a change because, whatever reason. The reality is, from British Army perspective, it's changing every day, every year, mm. every decade. It's changing because it has to, because it has to keep up with the context. We would identify that there is a nature and a character of warfare and the nature of warfare remains constant. It will always be difficult, visceral, battle of wills, battle of cohesion of one force against another. Regardless of what technology emerges, regardless of where it is, that will remain the same. The character will change. Whoever is fighting somebody else, what the location of that is, what technology is available, what sort of acts people are willing to prepare, what training forces have undergone, what allies are operating against, that will always be different. So whilst the context, the character changes, the nature will always be the same. And so if you use that as your foundation, the nature will always be the same. If you have people who have common values, high standards and have trained together in difficult scenarios, they will meet the, the context mm. that they are in. Now, of course, technology in particular, AI, things like that move rapidly and can change the, the context to you are operating very quickly. The army just needs to be good and always be better like every other organization at mm. changing quickly and adapting. Yeah. But we would always seek to have that foundation in place first, which enables you to do that. If you have good people, yep. that change can happen much better than if you don't. It will always be difficult. There's a common phrase about continually fighting the last war. But if you can adapt, and often it takes a war to force an army to adapt mm. really quickly, and we have seen that routinely in, in the past, then if you're open to that, you recognize it and do it as quickly as possible, mm. and you will catch up. And we're seeing that in the conflict in Ukraine at the moment. Yeah, I can imagine it seems a very different way of fighting, fighting Russia. <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. Okay, great. Well, Dean, thank you. It's been terrific. We really appreciate your insight, your openness. And I think what stands out to me is your open-mindedness, actually, and the willingness to be like, I don't know, there's never, like you said, you nev you're never ready because... There's always, you could always be more ready. Mm -hmm. So I think that's absolutely. <laughs> and coming from someone who's got, you know, such experience and background and you've been in this army, is it 20, 30 years, something like that? 24 this year. 24 yeah. years. So I think so still feeling like you could be more ready than. Yeah, so. More so than ever. Actually, well. Because being in this job forces such an amount of reflection on one's own leadership that you realize where all the gaps have been and, and where they are still. So. Mm -hmm. Feels like I've got even more to do myself now, having been at the Centre for Leadership for a couple of months. All right, Dean, thank you so much. Thanks very much.